Hi, this is Elizabeth, and I've listened to every single episode of the When Dating Hurts podcast. I have not been in an abusive relationship myself, but I've had friends who have, and it's good to know the signs early to get out early. Bill, thank you for all that you do. When Dating Hurts podcast continues to grow in popularity, the more who listen, the more who will know the realities of dating and domestic violence. In the meantime, the When Dating Hurts book in paperback, ebook, and audiobook is being purchased and read by concerned parents, teachers, victims and survivors, and of course, those who are currently dating. Education leads to empowerment. That way, if a potential abuser is targeting you or someone you care about, you will know how to detect it and how to break free and stay safe. Up next, another survivor story to illustrate how an innocent person can become manipulated and trapped in abusive relationships. Amanda lives in Australia, but her story could have taken place anywhere in the world. This interview comes with all the trigger warnings. The treatment Amanda and her twin sister JJ received as babies and continued up to their teen years is shocking, disturbing, inhumane, and frankly, impossible to comprehend. This is domestic violence at its ugliest. But the redeeming facet of Amanda's story is how it never managed to break her. Her generous spirit can be witnessed throughout. Here is Amanda's story. So today we'll be speaking with Amanda, whose story is just absolutely breathtaking. I really can't think of a great adjective. Maybe by the end of our chat, I'll have something. So Amanda, you're going to kind of take us back to your childhood, paint the picture of you and your twin sister growing up with your mother, and welcome to the When Dating Hurts podcast. I'm glad you're here. Thanks so much for having me, Bill. Uh, you know, I could go on for a long time and say how amazing you are, but it's really nice to meet a person that is a kindred spirit. And I know that I'm trying to turn some of my suffering into good, and I can certainly see that you've done that. So you've definitely inspired me in that regard. Thank you, Bill. I appreciate that. I think I told you that this is my first time in this kind of environment of telling my story from start to finish because I've always been hesitant to, I don't know, I didn't want people to think that I felt sorry for myself or that I was, you know, buying into this whole victim mentality. And, you know, I was just always so scared of, I don't know. And I, but I always felt disconnected also from some of my story. It felt like I could tell it as a story. And what I, we know now about people that have trauma backgrounds is that sometimes, you know, they've disassociated so heavily from what happened to them. And I think that's what I've done also. I also have, I'm so highly critical. And obviously when I go through my story, I'll tell you, uh, and you'll probably see where that comes from. I've been so highly critical of myself. I've never given myself a break and just kind of said, you know, just get on with it. It's not that bad. I also think that some of my story sounds so outlandish that 
it almost seems unbelievable. So I think that the general consensus is that my friends will tell you I'm honest to a fault. There's, you know, I've got myself in trouble sometimes. So I'm a late diagnosed um, autistic woman. So I've only realised that um, I have autism. Some of my social etiquette is not always as refined as it should be. But, you know, obviously what goes along also with trauma is severe PTSD. So I've, it sounds outlandish, but what I can tell you today is the absolute truth. It sounds really outrageous and some of it is. So I thank you for just uh, being prepared to kind of listen from my story from start from the start and yeah, being there to kind of hear me. I commend you for wanting to tell your story and it is a selfless act to do that. For a lot of people to tell their story from beginning to end takes a lot of things that maybe you've tucked away or you've dealt with and brings them back out of the closet, puts them on full display over the course of talking about it. But I think from your standpoint, and I think for those listening to you, that walking through all of that and examining that and what did it mean and what what have you taken away from it, I think healing can come from that too. It's a little bit of an experiment, but for a lot of people who've come on and spoken about it, they come away feeling like it was a cathartic thing to do it. I hope that's the same way with you. I expect it will be. I hope so too. I am, you know, filled with a lot of self-doubt. You know, I'm 42 and I always just doubt myself about whether I'm good enough, whether I'm able to kind of take up space like other people are and grappling with the fact that I always just thought there was something different about me that made people act in the way that they did. And really, you know, I've had a lot of therapy and still think, what was it about me that made so many people perpetuate abuse? Like what was it, was there something about me? Did I have some kind of sign on my head or did I do something or is there something just inherently bad about me? I think though, Bill, like I'll start to get into the story if you don't, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Please do. So I think it's important for context and at times I might seem a bit angry or unforgiving and it's not that I'm angry completely or unforgiving because I understand the context of trauma. Trauma doesn't just happen. You know, my mum was born, she was one of eight. So she had three brothers. One of her brothers died at birth and then she had five sisters. So my mum was born in England. So her parents were in the Royal Air Force and they flew all around the world. So Mum's brothers and sisters were born in different parts of the world, some in Germany, some in Singapore. Like I said, mum was born in England and her parents were, I imagine, also come from distinct trauma. So my grandmother was in an orphanage and she had no parents and my grandfather, he was, I don't really know too much about his childhood, but he was quite a regimented person. So... Mum was born in 1958 and they all have different memories of their childhood. Some say that it wasn't too bad and then some say it was it was horrific and they were abused very badly by my grandparents. In 1969 there was something called uh, the 10-pound poms. So they would pay 10 pounds to come to Australia. So mum 
her brothers and sisters and obviously her parents came over in 1969 and they made a new start in Western Australia. My mum was 11 at the time. From what people have told me about my mum is that she was quite a gregarious young girl. She loved to sing. She loves this song. Uh, I remember she used to sing it throughout our childhood, even though when she would get, you know, a bit drunk, she would sing I Am Woman by Helen Reddy and she would sing it at full pelt. <laughs> we were like, <laughs> everyone knows you're a woman, Mum. Okay, we understand. But, um, you know, there is really kind of different ideas about how their childhood was. I have heard rumours that there was some sexual abuse uh, to the children. They were also sent to a farm when they first got to Australia and it's now been directed to give redress to the people, to the children that were stayed there because of institutionalised sexual abuse. They certainly would have experienced, the brothers and sisters and my mum that is, so my aunties and uncles, they definitely had some trauma. So Well, it did involve sexual abuse, but certainly physical abuse, neglect and that kind of thing. If someone was to ask me what exactly happened to my mum to turn her into the person that she was, I couldn't tell you for sure. I could only surmise that there was lots of abuse and not a lot of emotional connection or attunement, which now we know that children need to flourish and have secure attachments. Mum had a head injury when she was a child. So she fell down the stairs. So I think she was just a toddler and she had some frontal lobe damage. And I wonder, and I have talked about it with my psychologist now, if that kind of impacted her in the way that she was so impulsive and mean. Uh, And I I used to be so angry at myself for saying anything negative about my mum. But since I've become a mum myself, I realise that there's really no other word for it. She was mean and she was cruel and... I've tried to work out exactly what happened to her because I'm a very literal person, but I just don't know. I don't know exactly what happened because sometimes, unfortunately, there would be stories that weren't true within my family. So I couldn't actually work out if some of what people were saying, as in my family, were telling me if it was the truth or it wasn't the truth. Your relationship with your mom, was she always that mean, kind of cruel person that's the way you remember her throughout? Would that be fair? It would be fair, Bill. Unfortunately, from what I can tell you, so my twin and I were born in 1981 and we were 10 weeks early. Before that, my mom actually had another set of twins that had passed away and we were told that she did want us. She was engaging in other unsafe things when is obviously not recommended as a pregnant woman. But but then she told us that she never should have had children. And I'm like, well, too late now because we're, you know, we're here. And I think with the luxury of time, she realised how badly she affected us. So she had a set of twins who passed away. She also had a child when she was 18. And so he's my brother. I'm not close with my brother. He was adopted out before we were born, my twin and I. I have had some contact with him, but it's another indication of how trauma and the lack of ability to connect and attach to people 
shows up in your life. We've tried to get close, but we just haven't been able to. There's just something missing. And I'm also pretty hard to get close to because I have been hurt so much. And yeah, I kind of don't really blame either of my brother and I. Uh, I know that there's suffering that goes on beyond what, you know, that action is. And it's gone on throughout all of our lives. So JJ and I were born in the early 80s. That's your twin. That's my twin. And I'm four minutes older. So mum said that when we were babies, so when we'd finally come home from the hospital, I was small at three pound 10 and Jeanette was four pound. And mum said we came home from the hospital and that all she had to do was shut the door at 7pm at night and come back at 7am in the morning and she wouldn't hear a peep from us. And I remember she telling this story and I thought, hmm, that's interesting. And now I realise that she might not have checked on us, but we certainly would have needed something throughout the night, but we were left to cry it out. We were left to just be by ourselves. And I've actually got the Department of Child Protection's records and apparently there had been neighbours that would call the police and call Child Protection and say that I hear babies, I hear toddlers crying and I think they're alone. And there had been reports where she just left us home alone at night time. We were just, you know, little babies and, you know, I think, okay, in the notes they said, oh, mum said she just needed to go out somewhere. But you know where mum went, it would have been to the pub. She had a problem with alcohol and she went out drinking. And so she was telling people that my children, they're so quiet, they don't really need anything. That is absolute bollocks. We needed something. She just wasn't there to give it. She couldn't hear you from the pub. Exactly. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, she had, she had a marriage, so... Spoiler alert, obviously here that you know, Bill, that mum was married eight times and she had number nine on the go apparently when she, just before her death. So she died at 51, but um, she certainly fit a lot of life in that. Her last three husbands were Pakistani and she passed away in Pakistan in Rawalpindi and obviously I've not been there because it's not considered safe in some areas for Pakistan, and they're one of the areas that's not considered safe. So she was very much a binge drinker. So she would not be able to have just one or two drinks. She would absolutely just drink to her obliteration. She would just get so drunk. One of my friends now who was friends with my mum, I was actually talking to her yesterday, Bill, and she said that when she was a lot younger than mum, and she said, you know, she didn't really have the life experience that she would have needed to save us and she said that she was surprised that mum even had children for quite a while she was at the pub with mum just you know having fun and this older person which was my mum she mentioned one day she had children she had twins well mum's friend said she was completely flabbergasted she didn't even know mum had children so we were just kind of this commodity where you know we weren't valued there wasn't space for us there wasn't you know, she realised how inconvenient having children was. So your mother was married eight times. Which of the marriages represents your father? <laughs> That's an interesting question because there's no actual 
100% proof that the man that she says is our father was our father. And as the story goes on, there was men that she introduced and she would tell us that that was our father. On my birth certificate, I have her husband number two down as my father, but she only met him when we were a year old. So he definitely wasn't our father. So they actually they committed fraud in saying that he was our dad. I think it was number uh, number three. So that's my biological father, and he. You will see how that unfolds in my story. Mm-hmm. He was Mum's probably longest on and off relationship, and she married him the third time and the fifth time. So they got divorced. Then she got married again, and then they got married again at number five. And their relationship was probably the most toxic, which I can kind of, you know, go into a little bit later. But my twin and I, we weren't encouraged to look after each other. We weren't encouraged to love each other. We were really made to feel shameful. You know, there's what I know about twins now is they have this natural inclination to be close. So we weren't identical. We were fraternal and I was four minutes older. But mum actually would shame us. She would say when we were little girls, she would say, oh, are you two lesbians if we would try and give each other hugs or kisses? Or if we ever said anything nice to each other about, you know, I love you, sissy, she would have this look of like disgust that we were doing something wrong. And we were kind of made to feel that there was just something wrong about loving our sister. It really started to show up where throughout our lives where we didn't, we weren't close. And, you know, I regret that deeply. I regret that deeply because she was all I had. And I really think that maybe she wouldn't have died if I could have been nicer or closer. I was just so scared, Bill. Like I was so scared of the person that my twin became as she aged. And when I was five, so mum, I think I inferred, mum really had a lot of unsafe people around and she would just let anyone look after us, anyone. (laughs) Madness, absolute madness. And We know now that people that are not the biological parents, you know, they're at greater risk of harming children and we need to be a lot more considered about who we have looking after our kids. When I was five, mum had this family friend look after us and I I don't know exactly where mum was and even though a lot of my childhood I don't remember, it's funny how some of the things come back in glimpses and fragments. I'd woken up. I was five and I remember being very little, like we were very little, we were premature, we had been neglected, food was not forthcoming, so we grew up in like real abject poverty. Mum was on a pension and she would obviously spend that money on alcohol, so there really wasn't a lot to go around. So, and you know, we were inconvenienced to her, so she would utilise anyone that would look after us. And this one time I had woken up I needed to go to the toilet. My twin was asleep and I, when, what we know now is, you know, what I tell my children is there's that feeling that there's something wrong and, you know, listening to those warning signs. And I'm an accredited protective behaviours practitioner now where I teach children to use words around instead of using a euphemism about their genitals, what's it actually called? Because if they do go 
if something does happen, then if you go to court or you go to tell the police your statement, then if you're using a word that's not it, then it's really hard to kind of work out what happened. So the first memory, really distinct memory besides my mother engaging in watching pornography, which she would do a lot. So I was five and I came out and this man uh, committed a aggravated sexual assault on me. And I didn't say anything. He he did what he did and I went back to bed and that was it. And really just seemed like that's just what happened. People, men especially, they just hurt you. They That's what they do. That's what I was there for. That's what Jeanette and I were there for. That's what our role was. We weren't valued. We weren't special. We weren't loved. We were just there for people to use. And I have to say that my mum and my dad, so the one that I think is my biological father, were both, and it took me a long time to get to this stage because I justified it. I said, oh, it's not actually this or it's not actually that. But my mum and my dad both were sexually abusive towards my twin and I. So it's not usual that both parents perpetuate incest on their children, but this is what happened in our case. And it doesn't just all happen at once. There's like bits and pieces that crop up throughout our life. And my twin was a lot more agreeable than I was and I was just I never I never understood why people had to be like they were you know I never I was born with opinions I was born mum said you know my twin didn't even make a noise so when she came out she didn't even make a noise and the doctors had to kind of pat her and she went oh that's it but I was born screaming absolutely screaming I think that's why I'm alive today because I just, I don't think there was something in me that didn't think what was happening was okay. I always challenged the status quo. I was like, why does she have to scream that loud? Why does she have to hit me like that? Why does she have to bang my head against a brick wall? Why does she have to? No, that's like, that's, that's not okay. You know, there was, I was six and I said to her, Mum, do I have to marry a man or a woman? And she she was a little bit less, so she got a little bit less uh, conservative as she aged, but I think that was a bit of a an uncomfortable question for her and as it kind of shows up in my life that, you know, I did marry a woman, but she also was a little bit, yeah, she was a little bit racist at times as well and I never understood that either. I'm like, I don't get why these people are like that and I always had this sense of justice. You know, when I was 10, showing my age here, but there was I was writing letters on the typewriter to the Prime Minister of Australia and I was telling him off for some policy about homeless people and I didn't think he was treating homeless people very well and he wrote back to me and I remember being pretty excited, I remember being really excited. Um, but back to the abuse, you know, 
I didn't tell anyone because it was not safe to tell anyone and no one would have cared anyway, to be honest with you, because we were used for other people's gain. And I think that it really has taken a long road to realise that it wasn't my fault. You know, I know now also, and again, telling it like a story which I'm starting to slowly connect with, that my mum would actually traffic us. So she would allow other people to abuse us. It, because she was doing it herself. And there was a few times when I was a child where some people would say that mum was inappropriate to them, or I know I'd have a a friend over, which wasn't often because I didn't really have any friends, but mum would make them look at her when she was naked and they would, these girls, it was like young girls, they would be like, I don't want to look at you. And she just used to have no boundaries and no no idea of what not was, what wasn't okay. As I've aged and I was reminded yesterday from mum's friend that there had been allegations of mum abusing other children. And it's almost now I needed to know that it wasn't just me or us being my twin and I that there was something about us but that there was something actually in mum that was doing that to us and to other children. And I don't know why. I don't know why she did that. I don't know how she could justify that. Do you think some of it could be the mistreatment that she had as a little girl? I think definitely, I think definitely, but I don't know. I I think she can't have done what she did without a reason to do it, of course. She's had to have been exceptionally hurt and distressed and in pain and neglected. I can definitely say that all those things happened to her and it saddens me deeply. But at what price... Did we have to pay for that? You know, my not only did she die at 51, so she died very young, my twin died at 34 and she was paid the ultimate price for the childhood that we had, the ultimate price. And all not just mum and not just her other seven or her other relationships, her seven husbands, those adults around her had a, had a responsibility to do something, surely one of them. Just one should have done something. You know, some people have said, oh, we didn't know it was that bad or we didn't know that, you know, she was doing that to you or, oh, no, we did actually suspect that part but we didn't know about that part. I I find it difficult now that I've got my own children, my own young children that, and, you know, I was a foster parent as well before I had my own children and saw the pain that these children had and, no matter what their parents did, they still love them. And I can still say I love my mum. I can still say that I cared about what happened to her, but I certainly don't understand it. I wondered about that while you were talking about this, if you if you loved your mum and you've come out and said it. So I'm angry now, Bill. I uh, have gone through different stages, you know, like so... Like the stages of grief kind of thing. Yeah, and it's been, you know, it's certainly not been straight or linear journey like there's been times where I've been very forgiving of her and thinking oh you know she had trauma and 
you know, as I started to study in my own life, I thought, okay, obviously this didn't just happen for no reason. But as I've had my own therapy, the little empathy that she showed my twin and I also kind of borders on sociopathic, like uh, psychopathic. There's something about her that didn't allow any love or care or warmth. I think you asked me before, I actually don't remember one happy time as a child. I remember being left for days. I credit myself, the only way I know some big words now is because I was, when I was, mum used to tell me I had to go to my room for something, I don't know, I probably had an opinion that was about something and she would put me in my room for days and there was complete abject neglect there, wouldn't be fed, she would only let me read the dictionary and that's why I think I know a few big words now. Mm. <laughs> but um, maybe that's what helped me challenge the status quo, I don't know. But when I was about 10, I couldn't walk one day and we were living in a small country town in Western Australia and just couldn't walk. And they couldn't work out what was wrong. So I was flown to Perth. They couldn't work out any physical reason. So I went to the hospital, the children's hospital. They did all the tests. And then they realised it was probably psychosomatic. So I'm not sure if you know about Vessel van der Kolk, but the body keeps the score. So the body holds all our pain and suffering. So even when our mind or we feel like our subconscious is not able to access a memory, our body will remember forever. So this was, you know, I was 10, they couldn't find a physical reason and they sent me to a child psychiatric hospital. It came out obviously about my aggravated uh, sexual assault when I was five. I didn't really discuss a lot of my other abuse that happened there. I'm sure they could kind of work it out. But I remember just desperately wanting to go home, desperately wanting to go home to my mum, to my sister and, you know, they were asking me the same questions over and over about this assault. It's like they really just wanted to know particular details. And I did go to the police then and I did get a physical exam and they said that there was, so even though it was five, six years earlier, that there was physical scarring, so bruising from the attack before. And I also think, and again, it comes back to not, really forgiving my mum. How do you not know when your child has been so badly hurt that five, six years later, there's still physical impacts of that? It's, it's perplexing. I don't know. I, I don't know. You know, I, yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's, a sh it's shocking, you know, um, but so they sent me to this psychiatric ward and I remember just waiting and waiting and waiting for her to pick me up. Then I finally did go home, but then she'd start to threaten that child protection would pick me up. So she'd make me pack my bags and I would be absolutely hysterical. Please don't make me go. I don't want to go. I want to stay with you, mummy, please. She would say, no, you're going, you know, uh, I don't like you. You're, there's something about you that's just so evil. I would pack my bags and I would wait for these people to come and no one would come. And after a while I was like, oh, someone. Someone, anyone, just come and save me. Just save me from this life, you know. I started to just feel that I'd be better off dead. You know, I was a child, a small child, thinking about suicide, you know, and we would watch mum, my twin and I would watch her. She would always overuse medication. She would just take anything 
And then my twin, and I think this is when things really started to go downhill for her, she would just start taking all kinds of prescription medication just as a little kid, just, you know, mum would come home drunk in the all hours of the night and she, you know, it almost sounds laughable, but she would like be drunk, but then she would like get my twin and I up in the middle of the night and for some reason she would want to teach us how to fight. And I'd be like, oh, my goodness, like I would not try and say anything because I knew that would get me hurt, but I'd be like, this is just ridiculous. And I don't even know what her aim was to do those kinds of things, but it was basically, you know, torture. She would just, we wouldn't have proper sleep. We would sometimes sleep in our shoes because if she was with a partner at the time, we'd often have to wake up in the middle of the night and just leave, you know, in the middle of the night, we, with my biological father, my mom and him would engage in such terrible violence towards each other. I know that there were literally stabbings with a knife. There was one time mum stabbed him with a window pane, like a glass window pane. You mean like smashed the glass and took the pieces and used it? Yeah, so in the, those windows, you know, they have the louves, is it called? Like the, it was, you know, back in the day, so it was like a, uh, where you could just open it. So she mm-hmm. smashed one of them and then stabbed him with a window pane. And then they would go up to the nursing post and say, oh, it was just an accident or she, I just did this. Or So we live next door to my biological father's parents. And sometimes mom would say, go and get them, you know, he's strangling me. And then we were terrified and we would knock on the door. They didn't want to get involved. It just seemed like this this whole thing about people just not wanting to get involved. And again, I know how dangerous that is, you know. You need to pick a side, pick a side, honestly. Pick a side, especially of the children. Fair enough if you don't want to get involved in two people arguing, but what about the children? What about looking after them? You got the least consideration. I don't know how legitimately those people could say or say, oh, it's a private matter or it's personal or, you know, sometimes there would be ambulance officers that would come out or police and then they would say, okay, well, it was just a domestic issue. Back then it was, you know, not really considered a major a major thing. It was just, oh, two people arguing. And we always had this unspoken rule, Bill, about being loyal to our mother, this really disgustingly terrible version of what loyalty was. So we weren't allowed to talk out of the home. We weren't allowed to say what happened. There would be times where teachers would take my twin and I and say, oh, we just are uh, just checking. We just noticed you didn't have any, you don't have any lunch pack today. Uh, and they would ask us questions, try and, it felt like they were trying to trick us up, but they would say, oh, what did you guys have for dinner last night? And Jeanette and I didn't have time to talk about it before. So we would all, we would say something different. But then nothing would really happen. The only really times that Jeanette and I went into foster care was when mum went to jail a few times. So she went to jail for things like um, cashing um, checks that weren't hers. So back in the day, I think there was even one time where there was a credit card number on the front news of the paper and mum tried to use that to buy things. And it was ridiculous. Like, oh, I don't know how she found the audacity, but she did. She certainly found the audacity.
Yeah, she was in and out of jail a few times for, I guess, considered like petty offences. And then we would go to foster care, but then we would, she would come and get us when she was, um, you know, out of, out of jail. I think though the, you know, again, as I know that I'm a previous foster parent, no matter what your parent does, you still love them and you still want them. But there's this like duplicitous feeling where you didn't want to be there and I didn't want to have the suffering and I didn't want to have the pain, but I wanted to be this sense of loyal that she instilled into me where you, you don't talk badly about your parents. You know, it was mainly mum because mum was a prominent person. You know, as she was being married so many times, we were moving so much. We didn't ever have a time to settle. When we were a little bit older, I think like 12 or 11 or 12, we moved pretty much back to the country town that I've uh, talked about a few times and we stayed there for a while and that was kind of like the longest kind of time period. But I look back and I see that there's this multi-generational pattern of like from her parents to my parents to, you know, of enabling this bad behaviour and this abuse by not speaking out. You know, we were told, you know, I was told that, my twin and I were always just so obedient and they were like, oh, wow, you know, it's great. Her children are so obedient, but children aren't supposed to be obedient. Children are allowed to be who they are, but we were too scared to ever step a foot out of line. You know, we were terrified. You know, it wasn't that we'd just get a smack. We would, I remember times of getting my head smashed against walls Mum would have hammers. She would have those curtain poles, uh, you know, where you hang up your curtains and then she would use that to hurt us. And a couple of times she would call my aunties and say, I've really hurt Amanda really badly today. Can you come and pick her up? You know, I'm worried that I'm going to kill her. Uh, red flag, you think that if someone says that, then you would try and keep me for a bit longer, but no. So I, I think um, I look back and I think there should have been someone that did something even the fact of her doing things that some people you know maybe look I understand maybe in the 80s and the 90s it wasn't such a big deal but and I don't know if it's me justifying in my own mind but watching pornography in front of a child or children is not okay it's there is no justification in the world that would make it okay it's abuse it's just simply abuse she wasn't all bad Bill you know like she had a kind, caring moments. And I think, though, that I always used to say, oh, I wish, yeah. But I also know that even though she had kind, caring moments, that a lot of those moments were for a purpose. They were for a reason for her to be seen in a certain way. And I struggle with not being more gracious about her and showing her more grace because... I do feel bad, as I say, for her life, but she did have the opportunity to make different decisions and she chose not to. I know, and what we know about her is that, or anyone that comes from trauma, yes, her decision-making capabilities may have been a lot more constrained than someone else who has, you know, a less abusive life, but she still had the choice to make a decision and she chose not to, chose not to make safe decisions for my twin and I. I was just thinking, you know, I don't know about your feeling. I think, though, that my 
the suffering that I've had, and I, you know, I wonder about you and the suffering you've had with your, you know, the loss of your beautiful daughter, but I think I've had to turn it into something like I can't not have some faith. So I have this faith in God. I don't have an exact idea of what God is, but I couldn't have had this suffering and not believe that there is some, there's something out there, you know. How depressing would it be to think that it was all for nothing, you know. All this is for nothing. And it might not make sense because I'm a literal person and I like to understand exactly everything, but I think that we're spiritual beings having a human experience. This concludes Amanda's story, part one. Be looking for part two on the When Dating Hurts podcast. Thank you for listening to the When Dating Hurts podcast. We have been steadily moving up in podcast review rankings based on downloads in the relationships category. That means more and more listeners are getting the kind of advice that can improve lives for victims, survivors, and their families. If you feel we need to hear your story, do not hesitate to email me at billmitchell at whendatinghurts.com. That's billmitchell at whendatinghurts.com.